Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our webinar, Grow Revenue as an Executive Leader, How to Align, Collaborate, and Execute to Ace It. We partnered with former Let's Talk Sales guest Carson Tate, which by the way, you should listen to her episode if you haven't, um, from Working Simply, and you can learn best practices for driving effective revenue generation. Make sure to watch that recording today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 290. We are in episode 290. Wow. (laughs) This is Elizabeth Frederick, as always, and I really think that you guys are going to enjoy today's guest as much as I have enjoyed talking to him. He is the founder and CEO of Outfield Leadership, which helps leaders and leadership teams set and achieve strategic growth goals. He has extensive experience in leadership and in consulting, and he is a prolific speaker, hopefully out to get on the speaking travel circuit soon, as soon as that is safe to do so. (laughs) He's also an executive coach, and he actually volunteers at an organization called Executive Coaches of Orange County, which provides no-charge coaching to leaders of nonprofits, which is a really interesting thing um, that I think I'd love to talk about. And he is an author of the book that I am looking at in my hand right now called The Self-Evolved Leader. Elevate your focus and develop your people in a world that refuses to slow down. Could not be more true. He is based in lovely Laguna Beach, California. Welcome to the show, Dave McKeown. Hey, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, just great to be with you. I am just so glad you could be here. Now, I just shared the top level kind of resume level uh, bullets of your bio, but I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners as well. Sure, happy to. I mean, that intro was great. Um, just a couple of bits of color. No, number one, I'm not from Laguna Beach, where I currently live, <laughs> as I'm sure um, the folks listening can pick up. I'm from uh, I'm from Ireland, actually, from Northern Ireland, uh, from uh, Belfast, and I just kept moving further west until the sun shone <laughs> for an appropriate amount of days in the year, and I've landed in beautiful uh, Laguna Beach. And I've spent the entirety of my professional career working with leaders and leadership teams, really to help them set and achieve their strategic growth goals, and and that means looking at a couple of different things, which I'm sure we'll get into during the, our time together. Uh, first of all, is just ha- having a, a process in place to ensure that you're able to set and achieve your goals. Um, but secondly, and almost just as if not more important, is just having the right mindset, skill set, and behaviors to implement that those plans, both at a senior level and then throughout the rest of the organization. And at, uh, before all of the global pandemic hit, I you know traveled around and worked with leaders and leadership teams to help them do that. I know do it much more virtually uh, and learning to grow and adapt in in that regard. Definitely. Thank you for that. Um, And I I definitely love that example. I grew up somewhere cold and snowy. And for some reason, I moved somewhere where it's not only cold and snowy, but you have to walk around in it instead of drive in it, (laughs) which was dumb. So my sister, who's in San Diego, made the better choice. But (laughs) anyway, um, I really love your focus on leadership. And I think it's just, it's something that's become so apparent, um, the difference uh, in, in good leadership and bad leadership, when you think of companies, when you think of countries, when you think of really just any organization. So you focus on helping organizations set and achieve their strategic goals. Why do you think the leader is so important in that, having a good leader to make sure that that, that those organizations achieve their goals? Well, without good leadership, we ultimately don't have a clearly defined bucket really in which to pour mm-hmm. our goals and our desires and, and our vision of where we're where we're wanting to get to. And you'll find and see that there are many organizations that there may be an absence of good leadership and they may not be necessarily not succeeding at what they're doing, but it's in much more of an ad hoc and makeshift mm. sort of perspective um, where essentially just winning the day is the most important thing for us. Whereas I think that in organizations where there's a culture of leadership excellence, not only are we achieving our goals, but we're doing it in a way that ensures that our people are growing and and are developing and in a way that ensures that we're having a positive impact and not just in the people that work for us not just on our customers but the the community around us and ultimately i guess the end of it is that having an organization with excellent leadership really is a much more scalable and b lends itself to a longer term legacy for that team or that Mm. organization yeah, I, I I completely agree with you there. Just in terms of that that alignment 
that a leader can bring. Um, because we've all probably seen organizations or even maybe been a part of them where there was a pretty good understanding of, of goals and what we were working on. And they're, you know, good people working really hard and doing good work. But when you don't have that leader at the top, um, it's very easy, like you said, to focus on just winning the day or to start mm. working at cross purposes or um, just not really pulling in the same direction, working for the exact same thing and knowing exactly where you're going. Right. Yeah. You know, there's 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 a sense when you work in an organization where there's good leadership uh, of going in every day and being part of something bigger than yourself. There's that sense of transcendentalism that, um, you know, really helps to round out an individual's um, impact that they have and their purpose for being and the satisfaction that they get out of what it is that they do every day. And I, I think a, a good leader doesn't, so there's, there's, an important thing here in that we've got to be careful that we don't look to our leaders to own all of that, that they mm. are completely responsible for it. Really great leaders help facilitate that. Yes. So they, they help us identify and set our shared direction of where we're going in and help us create a series of shared goals amongst our team and build a process that helps us hold each other accountable. Um, one of the things that I think we've seen happen in terms of our shift and understanding of good leadership is mm -hmm. we're moving away from this notion of the leader as the hero who's out mm -hmm. at the front, knows where we're going, acts with complete certainty, you know, and we all get behind and go, oh, well, that person we must follow them i think we're moving away as culture shifts and our desires and our needs shift towards a, a leader helping facilitate that process in a team but not having to own it all themselves absolutely that's one of the things i really enjoy in your book is um you emphasize that because everything is continuing to change and you know <laughs> we're seeing it kind of happening at different speeds over time uh the way we historically thought about leadership was very hierarchical and mm. you have to just kind of um, almost like the military all these mm. levels and then it did move into that idea of a visionary leader mm -hmm. at the top and just somebody who is you know they're they're bigger than life and mm -hmm. um, just really exciting and engaging and taking all these crazy risks. And as you, as you very cleverly identify in the book, it isn't something that most of us uh, probably even should aspire to, right? right. It's not, it's not a skill set that a lot of people have necessarily. And, and those people are special and there's, there's definitely a role for them, but you can be a really effective leader outside of that. So I'd love um, for you to talk about what are some of the behaviors and skills that you think it does take to be a great leader in the business climate of 2020? Well, I think I'd, I'd love to just actually peel back a layer before we mm -hmm. talk about skills and behaviors, because for me, skills and behaviors are are um, almost output driven. Um, mm. They're kind of the end result of actually what's more of an internal shift or, or, or mindset or perspective shift. You know, you want to get good at anything. You want to go to the gym more. You want to lose more weight. You want to um, cut down your alcohol consumption. There are specific tactical things that you can do those mm -hmm. skills and behaviors but unless you make that underlying mindset shift uh, away from the bad toward the good then it, it it kind of is is on a weaker foundation and so one mm -hmm. of the the things that i think anybody that wants to move into becoming an effective leader has to do is to, to is to make a very particular mindset shift we've sort of alluded to it and it's away from this notion that you're the the hero uh, of the story. It's away from this notion that it's your job to save the day for your team. What happens in a lot of organizations is we, we believe we take our cue from, you know, you mentioned a couple of things there, the military, we take our cue sometimes from sports, we take our cue from um, comic movies, um, <laughs> and just this notion of the leader being certain and, and, and sure of where we're going. What happens is, however, when that translates into the corporate world, you have leaders who essentially feel like their job is to... Uh, um, at best, just tell their team what to do. So somebody comes to you with a problem, you go, well, just go do X, Y, or Z. Or at worst, actually step in and say, hey, don't worry about it. I'll fix it. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's 
kind of obvious where that comes from in that we've been rewarded our entire life, um, whether it's from school, uh, getting jobs, getting promotions, where somebody says, you knew the answer, you did the thing, excellent, we'll reward you. Um, but at some point it becomes a liability and, and here's where the liability comes. If I'm constantly saving the day for my team, then ultimately they just develop an over, um, a sense of reliance, over-reliance on me. Uh, they develop learned helplessness where next time they have a problem, rather than even beginning to think for themselves, they'll just come and say, hey, Dave, what you want me to do? Because it's going to be the easiest, fastest way. And you know what? You're probably going to just jump in and fix it anyway. Um, and so they develop this sense of learned helplessness, uh, which over time leads to disempowerment in them and then actually stress and burnout for me. Because if my team is constantly relying on me, at some point I wake up and I go, what happened here? Can you guys not make a decision for yourselves? Why, why am I the one that's constantly jumping in to save the day? To which my response is always, well, there are two sides of that coin. You got to look at yourself, Mister or Mrs. Leader. Um, that's where it starts. So, if we're really wanting to make a shift towards leadership excellence, actually, we have to move away from that notion of heroic leadership um, towards this notion of your job is uh, to help your team achieve your shared goals, and in doing so, to become the best version of themselves. Um, in the earlier chapters in the book, I lay that out as the new leadership mantra. My focus should be to help my team achieve our shared goals and in doing so to become the best version of themselves because there's no room for heroism there. Uh, and when you do that, you see that you're building a culture where your team are willing to go above and beyond what is required of them. It's much more scalable because they're not dependent on you uh, and they have a greater sense of empowerment in what they're doing. And you get to focus on the medium and long-term stuff, which is really where you add value as a leader. Too many leaders believe that the value that they have is in the weeds with their team saving the day, but actually where you add value is if you can extend your perspective to the medium and long-term um, direction of your team and development of your people. So that's a really long way of saying that's the mindset shift that we need to make away from this notion of you as the hero towards you as, as, um, as the facilitator of your team's success. I, I really love that. And I, I think we've all seen that. Um, either we've been that leader who wanted to be the hero, or we've we've seen it in organizations that are around us. And it's so tempting. And like you said, we're rewarded from childhood right. for being the hero, for being the one person who solves it. And right. we all want to be, you know, Iron Man or yes. whatever, whatever example it is. We watch all these hero movies and and it's just part of our culture. Mm -hmm. The the just standard narratives and stories are all about one hero who saves the day. Right. But if you really and, even look at so history, I, very rarely has it ever been one person who magically saved the day. It was a lot of times one person who was able to lead a group of people, but all of their work is essential in actually making it happen. Very much so. And the the, the problem with that is that um, you as the hero is not a scalable leadership model because there's only one of you. And in fact, actually, you've got to start to switch your mindset away from, you know, going back to those stories. Um instead of wanting to be Luke Skywalker, decide instead to be Yoda because then you're then you're becoming the guide, you're not the hero. And actually what you're doing then is building a team of heroes, which is a lot more of a scalable um, perspective and, and position to be in. Um, and, you know, there are a couple of other reasons we've been rewarded throughout our, our life for it. But also, quite frankly, it's an ego boost to us. For a lot of people, that's where they derive their value. If I know that I can, mm -hmm. I come in and I save the day and we get to the end of the day and I feel like I pulled this out, pull victory from the jaws of defeat, I get to go home and feel great. There's a, you know, there's an endorphin rush as a result of it. And I think like so much um, of uh, what it means to be a good leader, it's all about intention and intentionality. Mm -hmm. And if that's if that's the sort of role that you want to play, that's that's fine and that's okay, but you've got to really understand what the repercussions are, which me which are essentially you'll never be able to take a break. Um you're not going to grow and develop your people. You you will be the bottleneck in everything and and you know for some people that's okay and they say that's the role that I want to play and I go okay, well you're you're limiting the impact that you can have, but but that's all right. Um, I much prefer people that say, hey, I have the intention to become an excellent leader. I understand these behaviors that have been instilled in me as a result of culture and as a result of my own ego are not the most positive. So how do we take those steps to move away from that, to break that cycle of mediocrity and move more towards a cycle of excellence? 
Absolutely. Um, I think that's, that's really important. You know, there, there's the stuff outside of us, but like you said, there's, there's such satisfaction in being that hero and, right. and being the one who can save people and, and rescue the situation. And, you know, in a specific sales context, I've seen this happen a lot where you have a sales manager who comes in and closes the deal. Right. After the salesperson um, kind of gets it up to the to the finish line, right. and in one way, that's like, oh, great, you closed that big deal, and wow, look at the sales manager always able to close the deals, and the sales manager can't close every deal for the entire team, <laughs> and if right. you don't develop the ability in your team for them all to close deals, you just basically have one super powered closer and a whole bunch of other people trying to feed them. Uh, absolutely. And, and I've seen it before in organizations where they didn't even realize that all of the leaders were functioning in that role. You know, they, mm -hmm. they'd ride along to the final meeting and close the deals and they had disempowered their entire sales team from being right. able to close deals because they just expected a manager to come with them. And right. as you said, it's a bottleneck because then, yeah. oh, I don't have a senior leader to come. I just can't schedule the closing meeting. Uh -huh. <laughs> push it back. <laughs> right. Or, you know, that, that absolutely happens. Or, you know, the sales manager or leader will see that in the final couple of weeks of the quarter, it looks like you're not going to hit your numbers. So what do they do? They go and shake a couple of trees down or go to back to mm -hmm. some of their best, you know, clients or customers, get a couple of side deals just to pump those numbers up to make it, you know, inflate it a little bit. We go into our quarterly sales review and it all is good because we hit our numbers. But again, what you're doing in that, in that instance is you're teaching your team to know that if we're not going to, if we're going to, you know, um, fall short in our numbers, our sales manager is going to jump in and save the day at the end. So that's, mm -hmm. that's great. It's really not that important, therefore. Therefore, it's not really a, a goal of which I really need to worry about. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so just trying to avoid... And we do that because we're we're scared of our team failing, and we want to protect mm -hmm. them, which comes from a you know a, a valiant place, I guess. But it's it's like being a parent, or, or so I hear. I'm not a parent. I mean, we've got a, a dog, so I guess I'm a parent in some <laughs> regard. But you've got to you've got to let your your team learn not to touch the stove, and you know mm -hmm. you've got to let your team learn that if we're not going to hit the the quarter. I'm not going to jump in and save the day for us. We've got to collectively find out a way to to get that over over the line. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm going to abscond myself from any responsibility that I have, but let's figure this out together rather than me having to jump in to, to fix it. Absolutely. I always have thought that one of the key responsibilities of a leader, especially if you're not the CEO and if there's room for you to grow within your organization, is you need to develop the people under you so that they can step up and replace you so you can take that step up. Mm. And if you are just becoming the absolute best person at doing the work of your department because you come in and solve every issue and make every decision, first of all, you're disempowering the rest of your team. But you're not you're also not giving yourself space and time to grow and learn into the next level up in your career because you're just kind of becoming the expert of that small domain mm -hmm. that you've taken ownership of. Very much so. And and I encourage leaders all the time, you know, a real simple thing you can do is look at your to-do list and ask yourself um, for each item on that list, is there somebody on my team who, even if they needed a little bit of advice, guidance and support, could do that thing on my list? Then you should learn to delegate that out and spend the time that they need to be able to do that up to the standard that that you need it to be done to, um, you should be whittling down your to-do list to about 20% of what it, of where it currently is. And that 20% should be literally only the things that you can do. And that's the stuff of the next level for your leadership. It's the stuff of more longer term strategic planning, building and developing more important relationships, you know, developing the team uh, in an ongoing way. That's where you should be focused on. And again, a lot of leaders, um, there's an ego thing that happens there and they go, well, if, if I develop my team to the point where they don't need me, like, what, what am I going to do to which I kind of laugh and say anything like you, you, you you're, you're in the best position you then get to pitch for your next promotion or a sideways promotion or into another organization because you've proven that you're able to build a team that's not dependent or reliant on you that's the end goal of great leadership is to be able to say hey my work here is done you guys are self-functioning and hold each other accountable I I'm going to go on to my next challenge whatever that is you know and let me know if you need anything along the way. <laughs> I, I do think that's where the reward 
might not give you as much of that boost of energy and adrenaline as when you can be the hero. Mm -hmm. But it is so incredibly satisfying when you see somebody that you developed be able to do something as well as you could do it or better. Right. And if, you know, and certainly I understand um, that risk that you have of like, I know how to do it and I'm going to do it perfectly and I'll be able to do it faster than they could do it because they Mm -hmm. don't know how yet. And um, it's just, I I couldn't trust anybody else to do it, but you can have a process around, you know, first of all, we're going to work on something together and I'm going to show you step-by-step how to do it. And then you're going to do it and I'm going to check your work. And then, you know, after a period of time, I'm not even going to need to check your work and I'll trust that you can do it yourself. And when you see that happen, um, yeah, it's not maybe as exciting as as that feeling of just like I came in and rescued the day. Mm. But there's that there's just a quiet fulfillment out of that, and there's such joy in seeing people um, grow and mm-hmm. learn and develop beyond where they where they came to you. If you're keeping people in small boxes because you don't trust them or you're afraid that it it undermines you to develop them, it, that's a really it's a really negative perception of your team that starts to develop because you're you're consistently looking at the smallest possible versions of them as opposed right. to the biggest possible version. A- a- absolutely. And there's a couple of key points in there. One, I think it's it's the difference between short-term payoff and long-term mm. gain. And, and unfortunately, from a cultural perspective, we're getting pushed more and more into the dark side of short-term dopamine hits, you know, and, and saving the day is, is one of them. But if you, if you ever want to build anything meaningful or worthwhile, there's a delayed gratification that comes with it. Mm-hmm. But like you said, the gratification is, is, is different, but I would argue better. The second mm-hmm. thing in there is, you know, the, the, the excuses for why I'm not going to have my team do something are, you know, you hear the same three, which is, uh, it would, I'll do it faster than them. They won't do it right. And I'll probably have to jump in and fix it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most of those are all ego driven excuses in the first place. A, a lot of that is subjectivity. They mm-hmm. they may not do it the same way that you would do it. Doesn't mean that it's wrong because we live in a complex world. Unless the you know the task at hand is literally to follow a process, you know there there are any number of ways to get there. And so you got to check yourself to the point where you know I've had conversations in my coaching relationships with leaders where they they say these things to me, and I look at them and and I look back and say, listen, if if you, if that's really what you're saying that you don't trust this person to do these aspects of things that you think they should do in their job. If you really, really, really believe that, then why are they in their job? That's a performance-related uh-huh. <laughs> issue. Like, if you say, I can't trust them to do this, then, you know, you're going to have to find somewhere else for them. And whenever I say that and pause and they take a little moment to reflect, they realize that actually that's way more about them than it is about the other person. And and it's hard to to, to kind of give up that that control. Um, but like you said, that the payoff in the long run is is just huge. Absolutely. The um, the most extreme example of this I've heard, this was relatively recently, um, there was a CEO who mandated the font size and specific font of emails that his team would send. And he would check to make sure that they match the exact font and font size and format of the emails. And I was just like, he has time for that? I mean, clearly he doesn't, but he, he made time for it. Because like you said, a lot of things it might be your personal taste. It might be what you think is best. But um, what's what I think is always really exciting is when you do something a certain way and it works and then you can teach somebody else to do it and hand it off to them. And then they come up with a better way to do it. And a lot of times yeah. it's more efficient or they're aware of new technology that's come around since the time you first developed the process. And they're like, you were doing a lot manually. And I know that there's this tool that we can use that skips, you know, steps one through seven. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. that's great. <laughs> I didn't yeah. even know that because we get stuck in the rut of doing things the way we've always done them. And sometimes you need so. a completely different person for the fresh perspective to make things a whole lot easier. We, we overemphasize the importance of our past experience experience uh, and the way in which we do something um, to to a, a fault because it squashes out the room for innovation and squashes out the room for new ways of of approaching and thinking uh, about things and the the reason why we do that in most instances is because 
we fear that if somebody opens a box of a better or different way to do it, then I'm going to have to put in work. To, you know, I'm going to mm-hmm. have to do something, expend energy to either support that or allow, allow that to go um, to, you know, to to be successful. We're in a biological evolutionary way where our brains are very lazy. They can see when mm-hmm. they can spot where there might be hard work ahead for us. And, and so we convince ourselves it's much easier to say, hey, you know, I learned all these lessons on how to do this. This is the best way to do it. I'm going to save you a bunch of time. Go do it that way. Whenever really what, what we're saying is I don't want to give you the opportunity to explore a new way because then I'm going to have to do something about it. Um, and again, that's a short term perspective versus, you know, long term growth. And, you know, back to that CEO example, what a colossal waste of time. And also the like the person's headspace. You shouldn't be, you know, you're, you're if you're leading a company, your head should be filled with what are we going to do over the next three years not is this a three you know is this a 12 point font or a 10 point font (laughs) yeah and i I think as you said um it's it it really is kind of deep within us the number of times i've seen even leaders make a decision like for example um you don't see this as much anymore because all companies basically have CRM. But um, when when companies were just thinking about implementing a CRM system, the CEO and the executive team would make that decision. And then a lot of times the top level executives would be the ones to force the team to take data out of the system and present it to them the way they've always received it. You know, Mm. so you're exporting it out of the CRM into Excel so you Mm. can develop a chart instead of having a dashboard in the system. And it's that resistance to change. And I think it is you know, as you said, it's a natural human instinct. It's our brain. It's what it wants to do. We want to just kind of stay in that same mode. But a lot of times it actually causes more work for other people. Oh, it when, does. Oh. When you're kind of forcing them to, you know, email the report instead of you just logging into the system because you don't want to learn how to log into the I- system. And I'm just I'm just rubbing my face in frustration because you know I've, I've I've heard and seen versions of that over time and time and time again. And you know, one of the things that I hear from folks that are maybe asked to do that is well my Mm -hmm. boss asked me to do that so I just have to do it and there's an element where I think that leadership excellence uh, there's an element of bravery that we need in there Mm -hmm. like like don't be complicit in the bureaucracy that you see in front of you (laughs) like to actually say no we've implemented this system this is supposed to save time we're going to do it in the most effective way and not to do it in a in an overly defensive or angry way but to 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 show the benefits of doing it in that way and then to hold steadfast and and hold firm to that because what's the point of implementing a system that's going to make life better and more efficient for us if if the top brass asks us to do it basically in the way that it was before yeah, one one of the big principles I've always said um, when it comes to CRM, because I, I do work with some of our clients in improving CRM adoption, and this is it's always the funniest thing to me. They're like, our team doesn't use the CRM. And we say, have you ever logged into the CRM to see what information they're putting in there? Right. And my rule is, if you are not willing to look at the data in the way that you are telling the team to present the data to you, then you can't ask them to put to put the data in right. there. Yeah. Because they'll they'll say, you know, I have 50 required fields on a lead form in order to enter a lead into the system. And then I want the salespeople to email me a list in Outlook, you know, of their top deals. Right. It's like, well, they're in the CRM system. <laughs> right. It's it's just so it's so strange and it makes total sense. Again, if you think of just the work that you have to do, yes, you have to learn a new system and know how to log in and maybe work with people to design the dashboard and the report mm. and everything else in such a way that that you're getting the information that you need. But if you're putting work on other people to you know, adopt a new process, a new system, mm. you have to accept some of that work on yourself to figure out how am I going to get what I need out of that system mm, without right. giving them extra work in processing it. Very much so, and you know you're you're hitting although it's a very it's a very specific example. I mean, you're hitting on just the notion of change management in general, mm-hmm. whether it's a new uh, technology system or a new process or a new uh, machine in the in the warehouse. Um, so much of the time and energy is spent on the front end. So we go through a rigorous vendor selection process and everybody sells us, you know, on their great features and all of that. And um, I, I was an IT consultant for a number of years, so I'm very familiar with, with how this goes. <laughs> you know, you do this whole ramp up of whatever, you know, 
data migration you need or setting up the forms that you need, you know, all that stuff at the front end. And you've got your go live day and then everyone goes home and thinks, great, that's in place. That's going to work exactly the way that we wanted it to. And it just doesn't because people are people and systems are systems and there's got to be a massage, you know, of that. And, you, you know, almost more of the work um, certainly more of the most important work happens after that implementation and, you know, just having review meetings that say, well, what's working here, what's not working here, both from your job, from, the, you know, the people above you and just, you know, continually trying to tweak that to get it to the point where it works for you, I think is hugely important. And, you know, I'd say that tangent just in, in, in saying that, that's just an example of good leadership and mm -hmm. it can be it can be a new system it can be a new strategy it can be a new plan the work happens on the implementation side not on the making the decision side Absolutely. I love that. And I think that is one of the key definitions of um, that effective great leader is being able to understand change mm. and understand what change does to you and how you might be threatened by the change and how you can best kind of manage that yourself without putting it on other people. Right. And then understanding what the change does to your organization and how you can, again, help facilitate um, throughout that process. And mm -hmm. so often, um, you, like you said, you know, they skip that step and then they're hiring people like us <laughs> six months later to figure out why didn't that process work? Why didn't that change that we made work? And you right. know, more than happy to take your money and help you there. But uh, so much could be done on the beginning. Um, right. at just making sure you've got a plan for, you know, day one after. <laughs> Uh -huh. And, it, you know, it goes back to, again, just that short-term reward versus long-time time, time payoff, where if you think about decision decisions, there's two aspects of a decision. There's making the decision and there's implementing it. And we, we believe that in a world that moves so quickly, we've got to be very agile in our decisions so that we can, you know, turn on a dime and react to what's happening there. But for too many leaders, we, be, we, we essentially believe that that's really just the decision-making part of it. The implementation will take care of itself. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, in a certain size of organization, whenever you're, you're small and you're growing and you are fast, yeah, decision-making and implementation can happen kind of side by side. But once you get to a certain level and, and size, just the complexity of the organization means that you may still make decisions quickly. Yeah, sure, we'll put that system in, but the implementation is going to take way longer. And so a lot of the work that I do with leadership teams is saying, hey, how do we slow down the decision making, not to the point where it's slow or it's glacial or it's just, you know, um, never ending, but just that it's slower so that we consider a lot of those aspects of the change on the back end so that we consider or have all of the right voices being heard? Have we got the people in the room who are going to be responsible for implementing this to give us a notion of whether it's going to work in the real world? Have we thought mm -hmm. about our communication, our accountability and our implementation plan? Um, because in a lot of organizations, you know, um, the, the C-level team will emerge from a room after two days of planning and they'll just toss all of their decisions <laughs> over the over the transom at the rest of the organization and say, go implement. And no, we didn't think about it. Have fun. And then it, it, a lot of stuff just grinds to a halt. And so just slowing up your decision making process so you can go back to implementing fast is, is, is really crucial. Absolutely. I just uh, can't think of the number of times I've, I've heard those stories. And a lot of times, and again, this is this is a bit of a mindset change for leaders because they're so conditioned to feel like I have to be the decision maker. Mm. And the biggest value I can give is making a quick decision. They don't even know the best criteria. You know, they're, they're buying a system, for example, right. whether it's a technology system or they're implementing a strategy and they ha don't have any sort of process for getting the feedback of the people who actually would be the ones working in the right. system right. And at the very bottom level. And it's a whole lot better to have that slower process around decision making, getting buy in from that team scoping based mm -hmm. on what that team needs, because they know what they need because they actually use it all day. Right. And, and then, you know, still as an executive, you might come in and say, okay, we've got three scopes of work that were put together that, that the team said that all of these would work and I get to make the decision um, mm -hmm. between the three. But it's not just... You know, like like you said, we, we came down from on high. Here's what we have decided. Have fun right. with it. Yes. <laughs> because that also builds just such resentment. And, um, you know, you were talking a, a little while ago about that just culture of um, being excited to be part of something and work together towards something. Right. It's very different than that feeling of, oh, my goodness, what did the C CEO or other C-level person throw at us now? Right. And, and, and you know, 
a month from now, they're going to have another leadership retreat and they're going to come up with another strategy. So you're going to kind of maybe slow walk right. the implementation of the one yep. you just heard because you know they're going to yep. change their mind right away anyway. Absolutely. And and the thing is, you know, it, it, you, you hit the nail on the head. The leadership team, when you do that, you start to um, erode a lot of the equity, sweat equity that you have with your team. You start to erode a lot of that credibility. All it takes is for you to do that two, three, four times in quick succession. People then start to question the quality of leadership that's happening because priorities are shifting all the time. Nobody's really clear on the objectives. We know that that two or three of these strategic initiatives aren't going to work in the real world, and you know um, we're going to have to scramble to make it up. And 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 then so you, you imagine that's the underlying organizational context. Way back to the beginning of our conversation, the only thing that we can see as leaders to make that all work then is to be the hero. So we go, mm-hmm. okay, well the only way that we're going to you know make all of this come out the other end is just to work harder, work longer, do the, you know, save the day. And, and that's exhausting. And um, so one of the massive biggest mindset shifts that need to occur in an organization is that at that most senior um, leadership level, which says, what's your clearly defined way to make decisions? How do you change priorities? What is allowed and what's not allowed? Because so often in so many organizations of quite substantial size, all it takes is for the CEO to have a thought in the shower that morning or to have you know an interesting <laughs> conversation over coffee with somebody the day before to come in and literally set teams and of people scrambling in a direction because they feel like it, it's a good idea you know they just toss squirrels at people and they have to go chase the squirrels and so trying to build a scalable decision making process uh, under which you give your people the opportunity to be part of that that's where the gold lies that's where you're building a culture that people really want to be part of where they feel that sense of transcendentalism where they feel that they belong where they feel that there's a, a place for them and hey easy to talk about but not not necessarily easy to put in place definitely i i can't tell you how many stories i've heard from employees whose ceos were in organizations like um vistage or the women's president's organization or eo mm. or, or some other kind of ceo group and the day after their monthly meeting was a terrifying day in the office mm. because they knew the leader would come back with some kind of crazy idea and a lot of the ideas might have been really good you know really sure. um interesting and valuable things but if every single month you're bringing in like hey guess what i heard you know right. I, was, I was watching the news this morning and something popped into my head um you it, like you said you don't realize the the scrambling that happens yeah. after and all of the people who who know more than you do because again this is what they do all day every day um about why that doesn't work or the changes that you would need to make to make it work and right. then they're trying to figure out how to how to fit all of this around what you're talking about and um it, it just again it, it's that that disrespect that starts to develop and mm-hmm. that frustration. And um, that's when you see turnover start to yep. get high because people just get frustrated and leave. Um, or you end up with that culture of, of gossip and backbiting. And it's just a really unpleasant place to work because people are constantly kind of sniping at each other. And and it, it's not fun for anybody involved, including <laughs> Very much so. And, you know, it's funny. Um, whenever I'm doing a session or I'm in a keynote, one of the things, and I know that there are CEOs in the room, one of the things I say is, hey, I'm, I hope that you're getting a lot of really good value and ideas out of this session. My advice and guidance to you is when you go back to the office after this, shut up. Just be quiet for like a week or a month because if what I'm telling you is a good idea today, it's a truly good idea. It'll, it'll be a good idea two weeks from now and a month from now. And actually, you can be a little bit more intentional about putting it into place. And, you're, you know, um, when, when folks... Uh, back in the office know that their CEO is off doing stuff. The one thing that they're just hoping for whenever they come back is that they'll just be quiet, that just, you know, that they just won't throw their 17 new ideas at them because they're still working through six of them from last month. Definitely. Definitely. Well, um, I want to, I want to touch on something that's a big topic, but um, I think it's, it's kind of in the vein of what we've been talking about. So your book first came out in January mm-hmm. um, and the paperback version just came out in August. So that's the, that's the one that I've seen, but uh, the world has changed just a little bit since January. And one thing that, that we're noticing, and I know this has become a topic of conversation is it's not so much that we're seeing a lot of unexpected changes, but instead we're seeing trends that were already in place that Mm -hmm. are accelerating. Mm -hmm. So 
what are some of the leadership challenges and, and issues with leadership that you were seeing before COVID happened that have accelerated in the last few months? And then have you seen any specific leadership challenges that you feel like have emerged related to the way work has changed? Yeah, so there's a multi-layered question, um, <laughs> but 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 let me let me let me let me break it down as best as as I can. Uh, I think you're right, uh, absolutely. Those the gap between uh, the leadership gap has only gotten wider over the last number of months with with COVID nineteen mm -hmm. and, and and a whole bunch of other stuff that's that's happened this year. Um, I think that everything that we've talked about, that notion of not being the hero, of developing your people, of being intentional, all of that stuff is, is we need that more and more now than even whenever the book came out. Um, you know, I think that as we're emerging into um, a post-COVID world, if that exists, uh, or even just figuring out what how to um, thrive within that atmosphere, Mm -hmm. that notion of leading through certainty is 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 out the window because it's just created this world that nobody really knows and so mm -hmm. needing to 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 have a wider input a wider collection of voices to co-create the vision of of who we want to be as an organization i think has has certainly accelerated also given a lot of organizations the opportunity to take a pause and say hey what's really becoming clear to us you know stuff accretes in organizations um um you may have started off with a real true understanding of your core values and a very you know solid um product or service line and a very clear marketing proposition that you go to market with over time you know a customer asks for a thing and you build a little mm -hmm. service or a little add-on or you know you you sort of um let some of those values slip because to, in order to help you support the growth and it just it, things just get distorted over time. And for a lot of organizations, mm -hmm. just taking a moment and a pause to say, who do we really want to be? What is important to us? What's the legacy that we want to have? What's the impact that we want to have? Who do we want to serve? I think that's happened a lot. And then the final thing is, I think that um, the our leaders are required to be a lot more vulnerable, vulnerable, a lot more empathetic and a lot more curious than they had been before. Um, I think that just taking everything that's happened um, this year together, it's just causing a need for our leaders to take a pause and, and, and just put ourselves in the shoes of somebody in front of us to, 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 to look at a wider perspective of hidden power structures within our organization, mm -hmm. um, to take a look at, um, unconscious bias that may or may not be there. That's helping that, that's, that's hindering our, our growth and our progress. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of an acceleration of, of, of those things as well. So yeah, l long answer is, um, we need more now from our leaders and they're even less equipped than they were before. And so my advice and guidance to, to organizations is now is the time to invest and develop in growing your leaders because they're going to be the ones that'll help you come out the other end. Absolutely. Um, that brings to mind uh, somebody that I was talking to just last week. And um, like you said, it, it's requiring so much more of managers. There was uh, this company the managers were used to doing ride-alongs with reps that were out in the field. Mm -hmm. And so they would at least once a month have a full day where they were riding along with that rep and seeing how they work, seeing, um, getting to know them as a person, checking in on how they are. And now that everybody's working remotely, they're driving their team nuts because they're <laughs> constantly checking in on them. Right. Uh, and it's, it's a completely different mindset that they have to think about is, okay, what was I getting out of those meetings? And yes. is there a different way I can get that is, yes. without, you know, driving people nuts. And yeah. like you said, um, you know, that, that idea of just, understanding that you need to be more curious and more empathetic. If you've got somebody on your team who, um, you know, a person of color who is seeing what's going on in the world and, um, and is feeling just more vulnerable and more, mm. more stressed than, than is typical. And if you just think that they're, they should be working as normal and you're not checking in with them, you're doing them a disservice. Yes. If you've got somebody on your team who's living in an area of the country where there is, um, you know, as we're talking, there are wildfires happening. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously COVID has been happening for a while. And and you don't think about what's happening in their region, again, you're doing them a disservice. And like you said, it's been important 
um, it's been it's be, been becoming more important, but it really has sped up. And um, just the the way you you need to check in, the questions you need to ask. You know, yes. do people have kids at home, and they're trying to educate their kids, or you know, make sure their kids are following along with virtual school at right. the same time as they're trying to do their job? How does that impact the way that they're working? Yeah. And it's not just constantly about you know giving people a pass, but figuring out how can you help them. Um, be the best they can be throughout the difficult situations that we're all kind of dealing with right now. Very much so. And, it, you know, a lot of the a lot of the language of leadership that we've used in the past and still use today, things like trust and accountability and, and ownership, they, it basically assumes that we're all on the same level playing field uh, of power and circumstance and and really in order for those to for that to hold true um it has to be the case that if you and i have similar inputs into what we're doing we should expect similar outputs the problem is that there's a big bit in the middle, which is all of that stuff that you've just just, just talked about, whether it's race or gender or having to work with somebody at home or um, somebody dealing with wildfires. There's, all, there's just this bit in the middle um, where uh, for leaders for many years, it was easy to just say, well, that stuff just doesn't matter. Let's not, let's not focus on that. Let's just focus on the inputs and hope that we'll get the same outputs. And I think that one of the... Um, biggest shifts now towards for our leaders is that that bit in the middle is is important you've got to at least understand it um, at best address it and and essentially try to minimize the impact on the output so that if you and I do have similar inputs but you're going through something that I'm not we can still expect those those similar outputs definitely definitely well, um, we've we've already talked for a little bit longer than I think that we were planning on. Do you have a few more minutes? Because I'd love do, to get sure. into your book. Sure. Okay. One thing that I really love about your book is um, you've made it very action oriented. Mm. So the last section of the book, for example, is basically a workbook that mm -hmm. leaders can use to help them on that journey to being a self-evolved leader. Um, and then I notice that each chapter kind of ends with uh, things to remember and things to try. So what do you want readers to get out of your book? And how do you want readers to use your book? Uh, I had this mantra throughout writing the book that I'd written on a three by five card, put it in front of my um, computer screen that said between the philosophical and the practical lies progress. Um, mm -hmm. In my sphere, I've read just countless numbers of business or leadership books where you go, you know what, that was interesting. There was one interesting point there and you just spent 12 chapters telling me different versions of the same point. And it's kind of like, what do you, yeah, what do you want, what do you want me to do with it? On the other side of the spectrum, there's obviously, you know, textbooks that are there that are very um, practical Um and I wanted this to be somewhere in between. The other thing that I didn't want to do was release a book that was filled with great ideas and then a year later, a year later release the workbook or the guidebook because I think that's just a cheap way to try to get more money from people. <laughs> so my, my goal in writing the book was that each chapter you would read, you would take a pause, you would write down your key takeaways, you would maybe go and implement or work on a thing or two and I give little exercises to do that as you continue reading the book. And then as you get to that penultimate chapter, it's a 15-week program that takes everything that I've talked about and just helps you um, essentially practice good leadership because I think one of the fallacies that have crept into um, our organizations is this belief that, well, first of all, that you're either born a good leader or you're not, which I, I absolutely feel, feel is not the case. You can absolutely develop into good leadership. But then secondly, this other notion that we just become a better leader through osmosis that if I just read enough mm. books or listen to enough podcasts or go to enough training sessions, I'll just somehow become a, a, a better leader. And actually the reality is leadership is like any other skill. It's like learning to code or baking food or learning how to play the guitar. You put practice in and you'll, you'll, you'll improve. And so that last with a penultimate chapter, that 15 week program is supposed to be a repeatable program to help you pick two or three aspects of your leadership, really work on it, hone it, and then, and then, pick another two or three aspects and you can continue to do that for as long as you want. I love that. And that, that kind of speaks to what we've been talking about, which is you don't want to, if you're telling leaders not to just read a book and then go wild and, you know, throw right. something at their team. And instead you're saying, no, take my book and, and read it slowly. Right. And take 15 weeks to really think through um, changes that you can make both to yourself and with how to implement change within your organization. Um, Absolutely. It's, it, I can say um, definitely having, 
not finished it, but I'm solidly through the book. It's an easy read and there's, there's so much there. Um, I was reading it mostly for um, context so that we could have this conversation, but I will be rereading it more for implementation. And as you said, um, taking the time to just do like one section at a time and really think about it and apply it um, makes it a lot easier for you to absorb and mm. a lot less painful for the rest of your team. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So in addition to your excellent book, what are some books or other resources that you would recommend to our listeners? It can be along the vein of what we've been talking about or um, completely outside that if you think there's something interesting. Uh, absolutely. So a couple of books. I mean, books are really my main resource. It's just how I learn the most. So mm -hmm. a couple of things um, for a really good holistic model of great leadership but it's a little academic. There's a book called um, Mastering Leadership by Adams and Anderson. Really, really, really good book. Just a little bit tough to get through, but it's great. Um, for real simple, practical, how do I um, increase curiosity with my team? There's a book called The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay Stanier, which is excellent. Really short read, very practical. Mm -hmm. And then um, a book by a guy called Brendan Burchard called High Performance Habits, which is really about how, how do I show up as the best version of myself to my team, um, both mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and in, in my um, interactions with them. So those would be the three books I would recommend at the minute. Definitely. Thank you. I've heard of... I think just one of those, the coaching habits. So I'm very interested oh. in looking into the other two. I use this honestly um, to help me develop that list of, you know, 10,000 books I need to read. But I know a lot of our <laughs> listeners are like you and like me, where um, I just find reading is one of the best ways to to learn something and really have the chance to, to kind of sit in it like we've been yeah. discussing. All right. I have so enjoyed this conversation today, Dave, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. And if you want them to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Uh, if they want to uh, find out more about the book, go to selfevolvedleader.com. You'll um, uh, find links to Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and um, a place to get all of that. Um, and if you want to find out more about the work that I do, just go to outfieldleadership.com, all one word. And uh, there's a bunch of resources and um, podcasts and interviews and blog articles there. All right, perfect. And we'll include links to all of those in the show notes. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Dave. Thank you for having me, Elizabeth. It was a lot of fun. All right. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and the resources for everything we've been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 290. If you enjoyed the show today, please recommend us to a friend. That'll help more people discover it. And if you're not yet subscribed, make sure to do that so you can hear every new episode as soon as it goes live. You can subscribe for free wherever you're listening right now. We love feedback. You can leave us ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts or email us with direct feedback, questions, and guest suggestions at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at CFS Playbook and check out the blog at criteriaforsuccess.com slash insights. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling!